If you want to see the full video interviews of this podcast, visit yahoonews.com or find us on social media at Yahoo News. I'm Zainab Selby. Welcome to the Through Her Eyes podcast, where I'll explore current news from a woman's perspective. We see the world through her truth, through her defiance, through her grit. This is Through Her Eyes. God and religion are being used as a divisive tool in our time. It is legitimizing the superiority of one viewpoint over the other in terms of gender, race, and politics, leaving some of us in a conflicted relationship with God. So what does God really stand for in these turbulent times? My guest this week is a Christian leader, Reverend Jacqueline Lewis, who says she's ashamed at how religion is being used to divide America. Her mission is to change that. Today, we take a look at God, race, and activism through her eyes. Reverend Jackie Lewis is a senior minister at Middle Church, a 900-member multi-ethnic church in New York City. I'm standing up for Jesus' teachings. No room for anti-Semitism in that. No room for bigotry and hatred in that. No room for somebody got so much money they can't count it and people are hungry. No room for that. No room for that. You are a reverend with dreadlocks, wear bright lipstick and very fashionable clothes. Yes. Who are you? I'm an irreverent reverend, honey. That's who I am. <laughs> well, what does that mean? I don't know. I think it might be more what many women who are clergy are like today. I think, you know, we didn't start ordaining women really until the late 1970s. And there's this sense that each of us is created in the image of God. And if we are, then God also is a brown, curvy woman with dreadlocks. And I love being in her image. So here we are at Middle Church. Now, you're, you, you're a preacher and yes. you're also an activist. Yes. Your church. It's a very mixed church. Yes, it is. Very multi-everything. Multi-everything. Everything. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, gay, straight, bi, trans. Really wealthy people who have more than one house and some people who really make it by living in a shelter. Now, you talk about we need to desegregate Christianity. Tell me more about that, what do you mean? Dr. King observed famously that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is perhaps the most segregated hour in America. That was like 1967, yes. I mean, even though things are better, uh, by some studies there are like 300,000 Christian congregations in America and maybe between 7% and 12% are multiracial or biracial, meaning there's 20% other than the majority. But that's a poor number for a religion that says it believes in love and y'all are all welcome. It it is still segregated. Too many people are hurt. Too many people are sad. The only way through through the shadows is light. The only way through the pain is compassion. 
what is a preacher has to do with activism? How Everything. do you answer that? Okay, Everything. go tell me. <laughs> Everything. Well, I'm I'm following in the way of my of my rabbi, my mentor, who, you know, if, if I, as a Christian person who believes there's more than one path to God, I follow the teachings of Jesus. And what was he doing? He was preaching the good news, um, telling people that that they were loved by God, telling a story of liberation and justice, but when they were hungry, he fed them. Mm -hmm. And when they were sick, he healed them. And when there was um, a, a, a children not being welcomed or, or centralized or um, leaned upon, he put the children in the middle. When in his culture, women weren't supposed to have any status, he was speaking to the women and putting them in his movement. He was a revolutionary, that guy. And those of us who say we're Christian and don't think we're supposed to be activists and political, I want to go go back to your Bible and read those stories of Jesus and watch him around, hanging out with lepers, hanging out with tax collectors, living on the edge, welcoming people to the table, breaking the rules, Zainab. It's so true. So you're, the revolutionary love, what you're saying, actually originated with Jesus. Right, that's not a new you thing. You know, that's not a new <laughs> thing. What does revolutionary love mean in action? My friend Valerie Kaur has a really beautiful thing she says about revolutionary love in a time of rage. Mm -hmm. Beautiful TED Talk. She says it, it can feel in these times of anger and rage that we're in a dark space and that the dark space is the dark space of the tomb. But maybe what we are is in a space of the womb. I would say these are birthing pains, that we are actually giving birth to a new society in which queer people can get married and raise their children, in which black women can lead formerly white congregations, in which um, young people are standing up against the violence in their schools. When did we ever imagine that we'd have a generation of young people who are trained on how to survive mass shootings in their classrooms? It's the kind of thing that makes you go march in the streets after Mike Brown is killed in Ferguson. It's a verb. It's not um, a passive emotion. It's revolutionary in, in that it sees the other uh, better than they see themselves. It will stand up for the vulnerable. It will march in the streets or get arrested for health care. That's what we mean by revolutionary love. We find the thing that we all agree that we need to stand up for. And we're seeing that happen. Look at the women of the Women's March. Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez. Look at these women being revolutionary in the way that they're reacting to what is not acceptable in this society. Today is an act of resistance. But the Women's March has not been without controversy. Since the first march in 2017, critics have accused the organization of excluding pro-life activists, of mismanagement and anti-Semitism. Women's March co-president Tamika Mallory has been hit particularly hard by the scrutiny and criticism. The women's movement in America has been divided recently between the Women's March and March On. Um, a lot of attacks on the Women's March, accused of uh, anti-Semitism and not welcoming women of conservative backgrounds. You made a choice to yes. go at the Women's March and you spoke at the Women's March. Yes, I did. What was the reason behind your choice? 
I think we have more to lose by breaking up the movement. I think we have more to lose by fighting with each other about things that are important, but not turning our gaze to the larger issue, the common shared enemy. Movements are messy, but we're gonna have to move together. And because it's a mess, we need to take these things with us. One, patience. Two, forgiveness. Three, resilience. Four, humility. And five, a stubborn commitment to look at our neighbor and understand that they are badasses. When I spoke, I said, our shared enemies are so clear. White supremacy is our shared enemy. You know, greed is our shared enemy. Homophobia and transphobia, those are our shared enemies. Look, we're family. Those of us who are trying to lead our nation to justice are family. And families don't get along all the time. Family life is messy. This cousin doesn't like this one, and this one over here disagrees with so-and-so. But I think the stakes are too high, Zainab, for us to break apart. No matter what they say, no matter what they write, I will not bend. I love all people, and no one will define for me who I am. Only I can do that. How do we make sure that as we are doing that, we do not become what we are against. In other words, I, I believe that when we lead with anger, we risk becoming the very thing that we're against. Tamika mentions a lot about the, the division between black women and white, white women. women. Yeah. And I want to read you a posting that she had. Dear white woman, you are not my ally. If you get more upset with me than your own people when I bring up the 53% of voting white women who elected Trump. Yeah. Until we see a clear message in this voting pattern, I'm going to keep bringing it up. Remember Roy Moore in Alabama after Trump. I can't speak for Tamika. Of but, course. But, 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 but I'll but speak for me. But is there. Yeah, it yeah. is there. And I'll speak for me. It is true that 53% of the white women voted for Trump. How do we engage that in a really profound way? Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, if we're pointing fingers, we can isolate each other or we can feel estranged from each other. But I also think there's something about compassionate accountability. So what I would say is, dear white women, would you join me at a table to talk about why you voted for Trump? Would you join me at a table to talk about why you voted for this president? And would you make the same choice again? How are you feeling about the way this thing went down? And what can we do better together? And I think that's actually my strategy, to have the same tough talk. The tough talk is we need white women to join women of color in holding this nation accountable to our feminist ideals and to care for the vulnerable and the marginalized. Race in America has history, and you're part of that history. Yes. You know, your parents are from Mississippi, and you grew up traveling around, as, I believe, as, as the daughter of an Air, Air Force man. But you encountered racism. The first time I was called the N-word, I was five years old in my kindergarten class. And a new kid came from Mississippi to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a girl named Lisa, I will never forget. And she disrupted my little flow. I had these little white boys. We were all white except for me. And these little white boys, Tommy and Tommy, Tommy one, Tommy two, were my friends. She whispered to them, you can't sit next to her. She's an N-word. And her mother gives her chocolate milk from her breasts. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And I went home crying, told that story to my dad, 
who then went to the Air Force Base commander and told that story. And her dad got in trouble for having a little racist in his house. That's a story that formed my standing up for myself. So it's almost like you cannot actually afford to let go of discrimination and racism and all of that because it's a, the minute you let go, you normalize it. Yes. And so you have to stay you vigilant to stay and it's vigilant. exhausting. In August 2017, riots erupted in Charlottesville, Virginia between white supremacists and counter-protesters after the city decided to take down the statue of Robert Ely. It was a combination of months of tension and protest that resulted in a car plowing into a crowd of peaceful protesters, leaving one person dead. Is this the worst acts of racism right now? What's your analysis of historically where America came from and where we are right now? I don't think it's the worst. In modern times, In of modern course times, it's not, yeah. Um, like the worst is chattel slavery. Like the worst is take people off their land and ship, bring, right? right. Um, emancipation, you know, reconstruction. It's like we have an ebb and flow of the worst things. Zainab, here is a nation where we're enslaved, my people, my ancestors, and then liberated. And what happens is lynching and Jim Crow laws to resubjugate those freed Africans. What happens is the 13th Amendment that says you're going to be emancipated, except you can be actually re-imprisoned anytime you're a criminal. And then what happens is the prison industrial complex. And suddenly we're warehousing black and brown people in record numbers, more than any place in the rest of the globe, because we that's another way to shut it down. It starts with slavery and it gets packaged in different ways throughout time. Absolutely, because the thing that is that does not change. The thing that has no change is the persistent myth of white supremacy. That takes form in the Christian church where white, white supremacy masquerades as faith. That gets built into capitalism, that gets built into government, that gets built into voter redistricting, and it gets written into how we're going to gerrymander, and that sense of keeping white folks on top does not change. The world who paints Jesus as white kind of teaches that God is white. And if you teach that God is a white man, you're telling a whole bunch of people something about themselves. And I wanted our children to kind of look and see variations of shade so they could find themselves in the story. That's beautiful. And we have friends who are in the Broadway business. And my friend, Charles Randolph Wright, and his friend, David Corrin, who's the set designer at Hamilton, David is. Whoa. We all came in here and we looked around the sanctuary to do a couple of tweaks. And one of my tweaks was, how can we make these beautiful Tiffany windows in which Jesus always looks like a white blonde European a little different? We couldn't paint them. So David was able to help us to use gels behind the window to shade the Jesus adults, three different shades of brown, so we could acknowledge the diversity of humankind and probably the likely brownhood of Jesus himself. How was the reaction to that? Did people notice? Yes, people who noticed it were just like, hmm, something's different. <laughs> and then they, and they're, then they're like happy. 
And yet the wall of all the previous reverends <laughs> are all white. <laughs> are all white men. Yes. All the white guys on the wall. So how does it feel to have your portrait here, the only women and the only women of color in surrounding by white men? Did you ever think that will happen? Yeah, I did. I did think my mom and dad told us as African-American children, we could do anything we wanted to do, be anything we wanted to be. So it feels to me like it's a beautiful symbol to be up here. But also, when you think about how many centuries it took, that means there's a lot of work to do, and, and I'm down for it. You're done, and you're paving the path forward. I love it. One of our little kids, a little white boy, blonde, beautiful boy named Byron, um, started coming to church, and he sees my dreadlocks, and he sees me as a brown woman. So one day he's at the park with his mother and he sees a dreadlocked woman, a brown woman, and he taps her and he goes, Mommy, there's God. <laughs> and he's, you know, being in this space and learning how to be loved by a black woman. That to me is progress. That's I beautiful. love that. That's really beautiful. Reverend Jacqueline Lewis was born in Nebraska to parents who were raised in the Deep South. When she moved to Chicago with her family, she found her life's mission. Dr. King was killed and I was hiding under my bed in Chicago while bullets were flying around outside. I was clear then, just before my ninth birthday, that I was going to pick up his mantle and work to make an anti-racist America. I am still in so many meetings with white people who will not look at me when they're talking. And I'm not talking about looking at my girls, that happens. But I'm talking about not looking at me, period, when they're talking. And that what I have said out loud, smart, brilliant, whatever it might be, has to be affirmed first by a couple white boys before it can come out of my mouth and be believed. Let's talk about the journey where that got you here. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, more than ever in my life, I feel like my inner me is lined up with my outer me that I say what's inside myself more often, and sometimes I make people really angry, but my mom died, Zainab, a year and a half ago. Mm. You know, she was a woman of the 50s, raised six kids, died at 80 after fighting lung cancer for seven years. And I felt like the gift she was giving me in the hospital room the last few times I spent the night with her. She just kept saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, Emma's daughter. I love you, Emma's daughter. And I thought she was saying, you go in the world and be your badass self, right? And so almost in honor of her and any of the ways that a woman of a gen her generation, any of the ways she had to be silent or not, I'm like, too bad for mommy and me. This is me. Ah, this is so beautiful. This is me. That is so, so beautiful. You know, for me, I think the tipping point for owning my voice was mm -hmm. when my mother died. Yeah, same because in the, the Because the last year of her life is when the time when she was able to tell me her truth of what happened to her. Yes. You know, all the things that she's gone through. Yeah. And, 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 and I realized that I am not going to be silent like my mother. And I shall dance and I shall be myself without hesitation and worry. 
you know, still, you know, I mean, every now and then we regress, right? I mean, you still go through all of the emotions, but that, but that drive that's like, I'm not going to die like that. I'm going to have to keep on going. You know, it's a, it's a, was a turning point in my life. I'm so interested that we share that. And of course my, my prayer, my hope would be women don't have to wait till our mothers die before we can find ourselves. That's true. When you first wanted to be a reverend, you were told, women do not That's exactly become right. reverends. Yeah. Who told you that? Who told me I couldn't be a reverend? Yeah. It was my dad and my pastor. Uh-huh. So, and how did you handle it when well, you heard it? then I was like, okay, but guess what? <laughs> how old were you? I, I was 14. Uh-huh. 14 years old. So you didn't let that opinion... No, I didn't let it stop me. Uh, I think it paused me, if I'm honest. You know, I wasn't sure, but it stayed with me, and... And then I did it. Two things that got me first to my voice. One is being seven, eight, and taking communion for the first time, which is this churchy ritual about bread and cup. When I took the bread and the cup, my mom said, God will always love you. And this means God will never leave you. God will always love you, and God will never leave you. Okay, I'm good. That makes sense, right? It's beautiful. And the harder foundational thing was actually my own me too moment my own moment of having a older man in my life put me in a really uncomfortable spot around my body you know I I thank God I wasn't raped that happens to so many women I know but absolutely out of bounds and absolutely horrifying and shame making how Um, old were you eight and a half almost nine and there were a couple of moments with this person in our family and at the, at the third moment, when I said, if you ever touch me again, or ever talk to me like that again, I'm going to tell my mother and I'm going to call the police and you're going to jail. And I was li- and this is he's still nine. nine years old. Yeah. That's pretty empowering <laughs> right there. Huge. Like, it's a terrible thing that happened to me, but it actually probably was one of the beginning places of my activism or my self-care or to know my power was to say, you better not ever do that again. So how do you navigate the worry and the fear with understanding this is wrong? The the spectrum of all the Me Too stories is also women saying, it's just not right. And you, like we stayed silent. It's not right. And I don't know that I have the power to say it's not right. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, it's really interesting to be my age looking back at my nine-year-old self, right? But I think there was something that my parents gave me um, and something in our faith, Zainab. I think the thing that they gave me was always tell us the truth. So, you know, if you broke the lamp, but you tell us the truth, you won't get a spanking. So there was something about truth. Did you break your silence at that time or you waited I definitely tell broke it? my silence, but I did tell when I was a teenager. And things did fall apart a little bit, and they should have. And the person who hurt me, we're still in relationship, and we've talked about it lots of times, and there's been lots of apologies. And that has been very liberating as well, to yes me to yes time's up, but also can we be in relationship? Can we be redeemed? Sometimes we can't. I would never tell women, like, stay in a relationship that, where you're being hurt, or that's not what I mean. But I mean, if there's an opportunity to have the truth be told and have the, 
thing be owned, yes, I did that, and that was absolutely screwed up and wrong, and a chance for re redemption, that, that's, what, that's what happened in my story. What is your message in this particular chaotic moment in American history? It is a chaotic moment. <laughs> it really is. And I would say we've been here before. We have been in chaotic moments. And what we know is that together we can make it better. Hi. Oh my goodness. I can I see love your service today. Like stop competing and fighting and warring for the, the, the plenty that there is and build coalitions, have conversations like this one, share ideas, and speak the truth in love. And what's your message to women in this particular powerful moment for women, I yeah. would say? I would say claim your inner badass. Like this place where our sexist culture has kind of taught us to dummy down or not tell the truth or not be strong or whatever in order to make it. How about if we reframe how we make it and claim our strength? Now, there's a woman who will see this and think, I don't feel strong. And I'm going to say, today, I will feel you're strong for you. You are strong. I will hold that for you today. And you might have to hold it for someone else tomorrow. But you are amazing. You are strong. You're a badass. And you can do it. Thank you, Jackie, so much. And thank you for this conversation, thank Zainab. You. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Through Her Eyes. For more thought-provoking interviews, subscribe to our podcast. You can also watch the full video interviews on yahoonews.com.